Hello and welcome to the Intersection of Things, your feminist podcast that doesn't have mattress money. <laughs> Hi Ruth. <laughs> Hi Marinelia. Lovely. I don't know why I said your name wrong. It just kept That's going. That's not my Hi, name. Marinella. Hi. I just kind of kept going with it for a while. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. So, what are we talking talking about today? This week we're talking about a very exciting topic basically sex and the internet. So one of the things that we both love about the internet is how it's improved our knowledge and understanding of sex. There are lots of YouTubers out there answering people's questions on things they can never ask their parents. We like podcasts like the Savage Lovecast, which help people with relationship issues that maybe they feel they can't discuss in a small town. Um, and also you can get vibrators delivered to your door. Yep. However, the reason we're inspired to have this conversation right now is because of SESTA, like the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act, which is undermining those possibilities. Uh, we mentioned that the internet has made it easier to access safe, private, and all of the advice about sex. But, you know, the same increased freedom is true for sex workers. So SESTA basically is a law that passed in the US recently, and it's set to undo all of that because sex is scary for Americans and people around mm. the world. <laughs> yeah. So to give a, a light overview first, it's basically a piece of law that's changing an existing law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And the concept of that law is that it protects websites from liability for the speech of their users. And this new law, SESTA, says that those users would now be liable for any sex trafficking activities. However, the broad scope of this law means that there are a lot of consequences to that new addition. And that's why we've invited Sarah Jamie Lewis, Executive Director of Open Privacy, to come on this podcast and tell us a lot more about it. So, hi, Sarah. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Let's do the thing. <laughs> so my name is Sarah. I am the Executive Director of Open Privacy, which is a non-profit society based in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, the mandate of Open Privacy is to conduct research and to build privacy-enhancing tools and technologies um, in a way that is inclusive of and is indeed run by people from marginalized communities. Um, people from marginalized communities like sex workers and people from LGBT um, factors are often underserved or outright harmed by technology and open privacy's mission is to try and bring those voices back into back into that system we're really excited to uh, have you here also we've been following open privacy since its start not that long ago so i don't know it was really really cool to to hear about this new group can you tell us a little bit more about this law the mythical sesta given that it wants to be pushing sex trafficking away from the internet but really what we've been seeing is that it's harming sex workers and basically these voices have not been taken into consideration in the drafting of this law so can you talk a little bit about that sure so yeah i mean so sasta or foster uh, it was it was two pieces of legislation that, that eventually collided together to produce uh, what we have right now it's it is ostensibly about stopping sex trafficking which is a laudable goal but the way that the law is written and the way that um, we are likely to see it used in practice is that it deliberately conflates uh, consensual sex work with human trafficking um, and not only the act of consensual sex work but it implicates anyone involved in assisting facilitating or even supporting the sex work and so i mean we've already seen ripple effects across the internet because of this we have seen a bunch of different charities and websites and um, notice boards and advertisements shut down over fears of being prosecuted 
historically, um, the reason these laws came about, um, or the reason given for the introduction of these new laws was a service called Backpage, which uh, was a an online um, advertisement um, site where people were, you know, people posted all kinds of stuff. Um, it had a personal section, which was often used by sex workers. And you know, there are plenty of studies looking into how Backpage was used and how it helped and aided the sex workers stay safe online. Backpage had also been used by sex trafficking. It, it was implicated in a lot of human trafficking investigations. Um, but if you talk to the if you talk to the charities and, and even law enforcement involved in these investigations, they will tell you that Backpage was often a resource to to catch people engaged in these acts. Not a not a site that was facilitating these operations. Backpage was taken down earlier this year before Foster Sester was signed into law, um, <laughs> demonstrating that that there was. I mean, even if if it turns out that Backpage was involved in unscrupulous acts, you know, this kind of law was not needed <laughs> to prosecute them. And so we find ourselves in the position today where this US law is hanging over the entire internet mm-hmm. in a way that is, is, it is impacting far beyond the scope of, of human trafficking. Yeah, the, the wording is quite particular, right? Like the facilitating part of it or like uh, you didn't mention or didn't say encouraging, but like something close to that, which basically, I mean, if you're a sex educator online, you could very easily fall into this category. So it expands to anything sex-related online, if I understand it correctly. Ah, uh, Yeah, I mean, it is... Americans like writing broad laws that can be <laughs> deliberately misinterpreted by judges and, and law enforcement. And so the act of what counts as, you know... <sighs> facilitating sex work um, and how, I mean, historically, we've seen law enforcement conflate consensual sex work and consensual relationships between people as being illicit or illegal or indeed tied to to sex trafficking and and, and this law. We we will see this used to prosecute sex workers. We will see this used to prosecute people running notice boards and and, and attempting, attempting to provide resources to keep sex workers and even those engaged in consensual sex in general safe. Yeah. Do you think that that is the intention of this law all along? I think if you look at the ideals and the philosophies around the people who have been promoting this law and those who have been pushing it, they will often do so under the guise of protecting children or protecting sex trafficking, but their larger agenda extends not only into ending the practice of sex work, but also ending the practice of pornography and in general a a, a push to <laughs> a push to stigmatize sex in general um i don't know in particular non-heterosexual out of marriage um non-marital sex so there is definitely a strong religious and cultural patriarchal push uh, towards controlling the bodies of people and, and the bodies of women in particular yeah like I heard that Craigslist had banned personnel ads almost straight away after this law was passed. And I was really surprised by that because, you know, it seemed like this law was really about sex trafficking, at least in name. Why did they do that so fast? I mean, Craigslist removed their personals weeks before the law was even signed into law. It had just passed the, the Senate. And it is because this law is that broad, it is very difficult to untangle what counts as facilitating sex work um, versus what counts as facilitating sex trafficking. Because they often look, I mean, the ads that are posted um, in order to facilitate that often look very similar. You know, sex traffickers will deliberately attempt to dress up what they are doing as as consensual sex work. And so, I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that Craigslist banned adult ads back in 2010 
Um, so ostensibly Craigslist was not providing any kind of service that supported sex work. Um, the personal section was essentially for people who were looking to hook up or were looking for platonic relationships or, or casual sex. Um, these ads and services were definitely being used by sex workers. They were probably being used by sex traffickers too, but that wasn't the aim of them. That wasn't the intent. But this law is is that broad and, and Craigslist obviously decided that the risk of providing such a service uh, far outweighed any benefit people were getting from their personal section. And this is a U.S. law, but uh, would it affect people outside the U.S.? I mean, we're clearly seeing Craigslist, which is not only in the U.S., uh, taking action. So I mean, yeah, I mean, so much of the Internet comes from U.S. companies and corporations. Um, you know, yeah, Craigslist have removed their personal sections from every single um instance of their site you know from london to vancouver to australia and other american corporations face similar acts we, we saw a large number of services and twitter included updating their terms of service to basically say that if you put us in any legal liability or jeopardy then you know we, we reserve the right to restrict your use of the service or to remove you from the service um, and we saw that come in directly after Sester and Foster were, were passed and because of the you know because of U.S. hegemony of, of the internet we the rest of the world is impacted by what U.S. law says and does um, and we are already seeing services crack down on on anything that might be construed as supporting or facilitating sex work. Yeah it's, it's very frustrating I think personally to see how much of American laws dominate what is okay and what isn't okay on the internet and that if if the reverse happens if a law passes in another country that wants to try and influence what happens in america cough cough the gdpr we only talked about that in our first episode cough cough um and a lot of american companies are sort of furious at being asked to install it and i'm just like well but but like american copyright law already tells us what kind of things we can post on youtube the, the system seems to be very much in the u.s's favor in terms of who dictates like cultural policies and especially around speech. I ironically I think given how much America talks about the value of speech that their rules dictate speech for the rest of us. Free speech. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't just a question. That was just me complaining about the American law system. Um, um, so this has already passed. And there's a lot of discussion now that it's done, probably frustratingly so, that there's more discussion afterwards. Is there still a chance to fight this law? Or is it really like it's here and now we have to deal with the, the new world? That's a good question. And it's it's a hard one to answer. The rest of the world, I mean, I'm not an American citizen. <laughs> um I do not wish to step foot in that country. As such, there's very little that me or, or many people can do about this law that is going to affect us. Personally, I mean, I used Craigslist Personals when I came to Canada to find friends and I met um, one of my partners there. And to have that resource gone, it, it's, it's, it's painful, it's personal. And yet there is, there is nothing in the short term that, that can really be done about that. And I think at the, the speed at which the US legal system and the US political system moves to restrict or remove or strike down bad laws, 
Um, it's really something that we are going to be forced to live with and deal with. And kind of my position on that and open privacy's position on that is that you subvert bad laws <laughs> um, and you try and help people the best that you can who you have to deal with the fallout. Yeah, it was a little bit sad from my perspective to see how little noise there was about this because it was such a fundamental example of internet censorship affecting the most vulnerable. I mean, everybody. I mean, not just the most vulnerable, like every single one of us, whether we want to admit it or not to using mm. these services. And it was kind of sad how it passed and how we're seeing the impacts already. And everybody was quiet. Yeah, I mean, this law was supported by a bunch of tech companies, um, the Internet Society, which is a group made up of a bunch of different um, tech companies, including Amazon. And while we saw some noise being raised by a, a few small tech companies and a few people within those tech companies and a few legal advocacy groups, this law passed with very little resistance. Um, it was a bipartisan supported bill. Practically every senator and, and congressperson um, voted for it. And given that overwhelming systemic establishment support, it's it's very difficult for those in marginalized communities who are the most impacted by this to, to do anything at all to, to fight that process. And it's disappointing that given the amount of noise that was raised over um, copyright restriction laws that we've seen past like SOPA and ACTA and given the amount of noise that tech companies made about that going to the going to the extent of like shutting down their services or blacking out their websites. Um, we saw nothing about that, given that this is probably the most restrictive um, law affecting free speech on the internet ever introduced. And because it was ostensibly targeting sex trafficking and was mostly going to impact sex workers, we saw nothing from Silicon Valley. And that's really sad. So it is kind of interesting that it's this, where people were willing to let a change happen. But whenever people want to propose changes to that law or gout, uh, you know, Nazis on the internet, there's a lot of resistance. I hope that perhaps part of this, this moment has been making people realize that like a whole other world to the internet that they weren't seeing already. And I, I like, I know that's true for me. Like I learned a lot whilst learning about this law, about different uses of the internet. And I also really learned about how much this law was manipulating people with this, like, this is about stopping sex trafficking. Like, I feel that there was a lot of power in the name, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, US lawmakers seem to do that a lot. Um, you name something with a name that sounds like you couldn't possibly vote against it. Yeah, it's all the, in the PR. Yeah. We actually wanted to ask you about something else. Yeah, so we heard, and we know, especially through Twitter, because that's where I personally follow you, but... <laughs> Uh, that you do research on uh, internet-connected sex toys. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about this <laughs> and how did this project come about? Um, what are the secur security concerns you have or talk a little bit about this awesome thing? Sure. So yeah, uh, for those who don't know, in the world of sex toys, where there are a million different ways to have sex with inanimate objects, we have now started putting uh, radios and Wi-Fi into, into sex toys. And that allows people to have sex and to you know, have play sessions with partners who are you know, halfway around the world. Um, and that's amazing. The big problem is that like any new technology, and particularly any new technology that has Internet of Things attached to it, they are very insecure <laughs> and... There are a bunch of different security and privacy concerns that originate around, around this information. And 
I think it's important to kind of understand what kinds of information we are talking about when we when we talk about this kind of um, technology, because we are we are talking about people's sex lives. So we're talking about who they are having sex with, when they are having sex, how they are having sex, um, and from that you can derive things like sexual orientation or um, promiscuity or any number of things that people might have reason to not want other people to know about or want to keep private. Under the security heading, you also have consent issues. Who has access to this data? What are they doing with this data? And um, you know, are there ways that these tools or these um, devices can be hacked or otherwise subverted? And what are the implications there? So yeah, this all started with an internet-connected cop ring um <laughs> which someone sent to me back in i can't remember when oh sent me a link to to this page and it, it advertised um anonymous data sharing this cock ring was supposed to measure some ridiculous masculine statistics about thrusts per second <laughs> or something um <laughs> because you know that's oh. that's how you know you're having good sex right oh wow <laughs> whoa but it, it, you know, it advertises a way to share this data anonymously. And I am a privacy researcher, particularly interested in anonymity. So I was very interested to know what they were doing and how they were collecting this data. And this, this copying never got released as far as I can tell, but it, it sparked an interest. And I started looking at ways and, and, and working with a bunch of people in this space um, you know, to, to understand the, the risks and, and the technology involved. Wow. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, I'm trying to think which, which point to go off on that. Um, yeah, because... Well, well, I guess my my question is, what what did you find out? Like, are these are there actually genuinely secure versions of these kind of toys? Uh, the, the short answer is no. <laughs> um, the longer answer is it depends on how much you trust the manufacturers of these sex toys. The majority of communication that these sex toys do, in order to facilitate you know these devices to work across the internet, the the manufacturers, the 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 the, the apps themselves, they talk to centralized servers, and these centralized servers are very powerful and very trusted within the system. So they do have access to who you are, who you're having sex with. Um, in some cases, they're collecting um, data down to the exact. Uh, vibration speeds that you're using in any particular second or I mean I think in one case it was clapping body temperature at particular points in time Um, and that's obviously really intimate and sensitive data and to have that sitting on a server somewhere uh, particularly given the kind of hacks that we've seen in this space and the kind of leaks that we've seen the internet of dongs project kind of catalogs a number of different security concerns and issues with with a number of different sex toy manufacturers and works with them to to correct those issues. But as a privacy researcher and someone who designs secure systems, the idea of having a single central point of failure that collects and hoovers up sex data like that is terrifying. Even if you had the best security engines in the world working on it, it's still a terrifying point of failure within the system. And so yes, uh, last year, I worked on a, a hack, a library to kind of make that better, to kind of facilitate these services over Tor Onion services in such a way that it was truly peer-to-peer. There was no server in the middle to collect all that data because it was just going between two different points. My goal and what one of the projects that I hope to be able to move forward through open privacy is bringing that technology to the mainstream so that we can stop relying on manufacturers to do the, <laughs> to, to do to do the right thing 
and to stop them collecting this information and to properly facilitate consensual remote sex. Yeah, like, in fact, one of the things I was going to say is that, like, when I was asking about, you know, have you found anything secure? One of the things that generally annoys me on the internet is when people say, just don't use it uh, in response to security or to privacy concerns. And we've seen that on these kind of things, but a lot of stuff, you know, people talk about that with Facebook as well. And it seems to me especially true when it comes to everything that's sex connected, like using connected toys or like taking nude photos on your phone or even using dating apps. And I always feel like, why can we not just hold those designers up to higher standards than just say, well, like opt out of everything that looks good to you? But what would you say about that? Do you think that it's too risky to use those things? Do you think it's on the designers or would you just say like, wait until these technologies are improved? It's... I think it's important for people to understand the risks that they're taking and to understand where technology is right now and what they can protect themselves against and what they can't. I think that the point of technology is to empower people. And if the advice that you're giving is to not use technology, then that's useless advice because people are going to use these tools. People are going to you know, have remote sex. People are going to send needs to each other. It's the responsibility of researchers of product designers and builders of companies of, of everyone to make sure that they can do that in a secure you know and private and consensual way so you know my, my advice would be to you know research the products that you're buying understand how you know understand at, at a high level how they are working and you know, it, for the most part current devices out there are communicating through a central server um, some companies like WeVibe have been sued for the amount of data that they've been collecting. And so to understand the, the landscape and to at least be informed about what information you're potentially giving up when you're using these, these technologies. And to hopefully, I mean, I see it as my responsibility to build systems and tools that eventually people can use that get us away and you know deprive people who are doing bad things um, of their opportunity to do so. Yeah, I think I, I think <laughs> I pretty much agree. This is like a, a different topic, and just see what you think if you want to say something about it. So, a lot of people who listen to the podcast might have heard about revenge porn, which is also known as the non-consensual sharing of images. This is a lot of the time when people use nude images that they have of a partner um, in order to blackmail them or embarrass them, intimidate them. Sometimes it's not a partner, sometimes it's someone who had them on their device and they've been leaked and then shared without their consent, but generally like non-consensual sharing. However, or like in addition, there's a new level of fuckery. Um, some people are creating porn of other people without them actually being in it at all like creating them using artificial intelligence, using technology. Um, and these things are called deep fakes. I was actually Googling it earlier to try and read some more articles about it. And I was really like shocked, disappointed that all of the things that came up on my computer, first of all, were like watch Angelina Jolie porn and also Gillian Anderson. And I was just like, this is non-consensual, right? Like you're you're literally like just going to give me first results is porn that's non-consensual. Um, and I was like really, yeah, like pretty shocked that Google wasn't first of all going to give me something about like, what is this? And I wanted to ask if you knew a little bit more about this. It's something that I've only come across relatively recently. Is it legal? Can people take this down if they find it's happening to them? This is one of those it depends answers. 
it's really hard to technology is multiple steps ahead of law in in most cases and particularly law that involves the creation of content i mean deep fakes especially kind of taking publicly available images of someone and superimposing them you know using machine learning and artificial intelligence onto pornography i mean it's something that's been around for decades at this point people have been photoshopping celebrities in various porn for probably as long as there's been an internet um, but the um, quality now is the quality is yeah it's obviously much improved now. you can superimpose vi- you know videos onto each other so if you have a video of someone doing something completely non-sexual it, it, you know, it is very possible now to superimpose that person's face um, and other parts of their body onto onto a pornographic scene um, and you know, in many cases manipulate what they're doing and the state of this technology, the state of this social issue, is just going to get worse with time. Um, we are already seeing, you know, complete digital recreations of people being used in used in cinema right now, and it's only a matter of time before that kind of technology you know, filters down into the hands of people who don't have um, that large amount of technical knowledge um, to deal you know, dealing with it and having it taken down, it becomes this huge intersection of laws that deal with revenge porn, laws that deal with copyright, laws that deal with um, content creation, laws that deal with free speech. And I don't think that any society or any jurisdiction on the planet has really even started asking the kinds of questions that need to be asked in order to come to a satisfying outcome, of <laughs> a satisfying solution to this problem. And we're probably at least a decade out before lawmakers fully start understanding and grasping with it. And as much as I hate saying this, it is probably up to, at least in the short term, social media companies and tech companies to kind of get ahead of this curve and to at least minimize the harm. Facebook are kind of doing this with their revenge porn, preemptively taking down their image hash system, which has some issues how that gets extended to accommodate deep fakes is an open question and something that i think is going to result in some very uncomfortable conversations in the next few years that's fascinating and very scary and we're just seeing the beginning of of this this is not yeah, I mean, outside of sex, there's the whole question about what you can do with tricking people, about what politicians said, or there's a whole world of how you can create fake news events. And I hate using that phrase that just came out of my mouth because it's like so tainted by everything Donald Trump says. <laughs> but the fact that you can use technology to fool people to a greater degree than ever before is true and it's worrying. And one thing that I, I don't know, and I don't know if you would both agree or disagree, but I find it fascinating how anything that we see as like this new threat, uh, we can kind of start seeing its origins in like porn or in like anything sex related. So it's almost like, oh, you're afraid of Obama being used to say stuff that's weird through this new technology of like superimposing his face but like porn had this you know years ago with their technology so i don't know i'm just fascinated like look at if you want to look at the future this is one of the oracles you can start looking at sort of thing it's always been the case that that, that this kind of meme that that pornography drives pretty much Mm. all other technology choices uh from like betamax and (laughs) um all the way up to dvds and blu-ray and it's yeah it, it is kind of terrifying the extension of this technology into 
social discourse and uh, media literacy. And there are some really hard questions there about how we educate people, how we authenticate new stories and events, which I don't think, I don't even think we have the tools um, or the the organizations or the structure in place to even start answering those questions yet. We, our brains, our society, our, our sense of understanding is so rooted in what we see is real <laughs> and that it's hard to mock or create fake events or to, you know, to make someone say something that they didn't say. You know, and PR firms and, and politicians have been abusing that kind of weakness in our psyche for, for, for decades, for centuries even, to, to manipulate facts, manipulate opinion. But like anything, technology accelerates that. <laughs> and yeah, it could be the case that in five, ten years, maybe even sooner, we, we do have, you know, full news stories about events that didn't happen. And especially now where we are seeing so many small news organizations, so many small, so many independent journalists are being made redundant. They're losing their, they're losing their structures. Their independent news outlets are struggling to stay alive. And without that basis, without that fundamental protection of a free press, um, to independently report on news stories. The abuse or the, the chance of abuse from those in power extends far beyond porn um, and far beyond individual victims. And that is, that is very scary. And I don't think we have good answers. I don't think we have good questions yet. There's a, a lawyer who does work around um, obscenity law in the UK called Miles Jackman. And he always says that porn is the canary in the coal mine of free speech. And I think like the more I learn, the more I see how true that is. You know, you think it's just laws regulating porn, like that obvious clear space. And then you start to see how many other laws regulating other things actually are also meant to be about regulating porn or were inspired by things that porn was coming up with first. It's it's not just that category. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is general. I mean, the, in, laws tend to impact the margins of society first because you know, they do not have lobbying arms. They do not have ways to protect themselves or shelter themselves from bad laws. And those are the ones that are often... Um, they're often targets of those with power in society. They are often the ones that are oppressed. And so, uh, yeah, I do think that when digital rights groups, when technologists, when researchers look at these laws and look at the things that they care about, they have to look at how they're being, at how marginalized people are first being impacted because, you know, it, it's that whole, you know, first they came for, <laughs> for me principle. It's as marginalized communities get picked off first and then eventually it's, it's everyone else. And so we, we do have to be much better at protecting the margins and protecting the vulnerable in our society. Yeah, I think we're just like plus 100 on that, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I guess it's, I mean, it's the, the rant that I always have of like how we can no longer be seeing problems as isolated to the communities that they affect the most. Like it's not a sex worker's problem and it's not, you know, it's not a a women's problem or like a marginalized community problem like we cannot afford to to do this um not only from a moral and ethical perspective but also honestly we cannot afford to like it's, it's going to be a wasted battle unless we actually start working with each other and actually looking at movements and and people who have been doing activism for a lot longer than digital stuff has been around. So Yeah, we just got back from RightsCon and I was thinking about how 
like the tagline for RightsCon had been human rights in the digital age. And I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe I need to stop using the term digital rights altogether because that's still like I'm reinforcing some kind of divide, some kind of different categories of rights. And it, and it isn't that. It's just talking about how rights are being impacted by technology. I'm a little bit curious on how you got to do this, to be who you are right now. And I'm thinking particularly all of those people who are thinking of going into this area of work, people who are looking to switch careers. Um, I know I have, you know, friends doing the whole computer science stuff, women and queers and, you know, who are really looking to, to get into this and you are, you know, already doing some of this stuff. So I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit about your origin story. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So I started off, where do I start? So I got a computer science degree and then became a spy, which is a really weird origin story. Um, it sounds like an origin story, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. And I spent a number of years working for British intelligence um, and eventually became dissatisfied, concerned, um, and I left. And I left to go work at Amazon and you know do the whole corporate capitalism thing for a while and over the years you know as you get it's it's weird when you work in intelligence the the atmosphere that the surrounding people it, you develop a certain way of thinking about the world and a certain way of viewing the world and when you're outside of that sphere of influence and you start living in the real world again um your thought patterns change and your ideas change and you start thinking more critically about the morality and the ethics of, of what you've been doing. And eventually it got to the point where I'd been away from that place and those people long enough that I became highly dissatisfied, unhappy about the work that I had done there and the the kinds of systems I had built and had a strong desire and motivation to change that. And it's, you know, it is something that I couldn't do while working at any kind of tech company. And I wanted to be doing meaningful work. Um, and so I was privileged enough at that point in time to be able to quit my job and to try and work out how to do the kind of research and the kind of work that I wanted to do in a way that was sustainable and a way that I could bring other people along. And so that first year that I was kind of out of anything, I produced a book called Queer Privacy, which is a collection of um, essays and stories from people who intersect with queerness in some way in their experiences with privacy. And the point of that was to document and to understand the landscape of how these technologies harm people and how they underserve people and to work out how we can do that better. And from there, it's kind of been following or one step at a time moving forward and open privacy developed out of that with the intention of becoming an organization where we can eventually fund that kind of research. We can fund research and people to do that kind of meaningful research that undermines surveillance capitalism, that empowers marginalized people. And to produce a world full of technology that is that enables consent, that is moral by design, that doesn't rely on surveilling people and collecting large amounts of data in order to sustain itself. I'm still not sure that goal is even possible, <laughs> um, but it's something that I feel like we have to do because we're running out of options everywhere else. I don't think we can rely on governments and states to do the right thing. I don't think we can rely on corporations to do the right thing. Um, and so we have to rely on ourselves to do the right thing. <laughs> 
and it's the responsibility of people with privilege, no matter how tenuous, to try and facilitate and make that sustainable. And that is effectively what I'm trying to do and what others in open privacy are trying to do. That's so awesome. Yeah, I really like... Thank you for that. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, like, the book was the first time I actually heard of you. And it just was one of those things that, like, someone retweeted into my timeline when you were looking for people to write chapters for it. And I was, I, like, pre-ordered it and everything. So I was just like, yes, someone is telling this story. Like, someone is actually writing about surveillance and privacy not from this one white male perspective about how they're suddenly scared that people are reading their emails and like actually talking about real life experiences of surveillance so we will definitely put a link to uh read and get the book in the show notes however i think we've we've reached the end of our set of questions and you gave really great thoughtful answers i learned loads so i'm so glad you came and joined us thank you for finding the time Thank you for inviting me. Um, I guess just before you go, can you tell people listening to the podcast where they can find more about you and your work? Sure. So um, you go to openprivacy.ca, you'll find Open Privacy, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Jamie Lewis if you would like to hear me rant about everything. Great. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. This is so awesome. So Marinella, what are you taking away from today's discussion? Uh, this was such an awesome conversation, there's so much, so I will be thinking about this a lot, but I think the thing that really resonates with me right now is uh, this thing that Sarah said about, you know, that, that saying of like, first they came for the most marginalized, you know, and at the very end there was, you know, no one else to defend or speak for me. Yeah, this first they came for, you know, we can see how right now in these times where like, there's, you know, a white supremacist in the White House and and there's a lot of stuff going on terrible times basically we're beginning to see how this is already happening you know they're they're coming with draconian laws to tackle sex workers in the name of like stopping sex trafficking or whatever but it's really just this dragnet of oppression we're seeing similar things with immigration and whatnot in the states we can no longer afford to ignore those signals just because it's sex just because it's a taboo topic we're just letting law and super oppressive things take over so yeah that's what I'm taking away it's not a high note but what about you well I guess I'm gonna pick up on like at least one positive side of all of that because I was really interested in that discussion about internet connected sex toys and how she came across the the weird like thrust per minute cockering but then we got also got discussing the um, deep fakes and the kind of like theme with both of these things is where technology is just developing faster than laws can keep up with them and that therefore there's a sense of responsibility on those people who can understand them whose people who can work on them to to say like let's fix these things ourselves like i like that idea of like you know we can't always trust governments to fix this stuff because it's going to take them 20 years to understand what's going on and we can't always trust corporates to fix things because you know they have their own agenda but saying like what can we do ourselves like what can we build like the whole idea behind the open privacy project of saying like it's the job of people who have some level of privilege to try and like work on these things and to make the internet more secure and safer for marginalized communities 
Like, I still definitely would want governments to respond to those things. I don't want to let them off the hook, you know? Mm-hmm. Similarly, I wouldn't let corporations off the hook of putting consent first in their work. But there's a little bit of inspiration that says sometimes, you know, the same thing she said about Sester, actually, like, sometimes you can just resist and subvert yourself. Yeah. And I think I think that's, like, nice to remember. Yeah, thank you, uh, Sarah Jamie Lewis, for this awesome interview. Um, again, although she's now gone. And uh, thank you, Ruth, for podcasting, as always. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. It's, it's always really good to uh, spend my Sunday nights with you. This is the intersection of things. For all footnotes and all of the awesome things, go to www.theintersectionofthings.com You can also like, subscribe, share, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, any potty podcast pod pod app that you use. What else, Ruth? You can tweet us at Things Intersect and I'm Ruth Kustik Deal and you can find me on Twitter at Nessient, N-E-S-I-E-N-T or on Medium at medium.com slash at Ruth Kustik Deal. And I'm Marianella, you can find me at Undaced and Such. We'd like to say thanks to David Mark Hucklesby for composing the music. Until next time. Bye. Bye.